So, you slept in. Hey, we're not judging. Sometimes you just need to get a little bit more sleep. And if you do need to snooze, we'd much rather you did that in a comfortable place because you can always catch up with the sermon later. And today's sermon is a very special treat. Uh, Devin Gardner is a lay person at Reno First United Methodist Church and has a fascinating story that you should all hear at some point. But he preached on Pride Sunday at our church. And so Devin is going to share the sermon that he preached there. And then we'll have a little conversation afterwards. But I wanted to give it to you unadulterated and unfiltered and uninterrupted uh, because I know there's a lot of folks who wanted to hear the sermon who weren't able to be there. So family members who are far away, friends who had to work, this is for you. This is why we do a podcast because we can't give you everything that you get at church. We can't give you community through a podcast or music or cookies, but we can give you the content of what we discussed. And so I'm really excited for you to hear what Devin had to say. My name is Chris Marshall. I'm the pastor of Reno First United Methodist Church and one of the hosts of the Sunday Morning Sleep In podcast. And uh, I'm just really excited to have him here on the show with us. So however you're listening to this podcast at home, at work, uh, while you're running errands or however, we just ask that you would keep an open heart and an open mind. You don't have to agree with everything we say. We expect that this is sort of a jumping off point for you to do your own thinking about what you believe about God and life and faith and relationships and love. And so, however you're hearing this, we hope that you will experience the mysterious loving force in the world we know as God moving in your life as you consider this. In one of the stories of our tradition, there's a man named Isaac. Isaac and his wife, Rebecca, had two sons, Esau and Jacob. Esau was everything Isaac wanted a firstborn son to be. He was handsome, he was rugged, he was outdoorsy and strong. He was a hunter who always smelled of the field. He was covered in red hair. He probably had a magnificent beard. He was masculine. Jacob, on the other hand, was more indoorsy. He had much less hair, didn't really care for hunting. He liked to cook and spend time with his mother. Jacob was maybe a bit more feminine. Esau was his father's favorite, and Jacob was his mother's favorite. And obviously, this created an unhealthy, dysfunctional family that led to a lot of problems and pain. And the terrible beauty of the Bible, of the stories in the Bible of this story, is not whether it actually happened. The terrible beauty of the stories in the Bible is that they continue to. These are our stories. We all know this family. This was my family. Well, Isaac gets older. He loses his sight, and he's eventually on his deathbed. He knows he's on his way out, and he wants to give the great paternal blessing to his son Esau. Uh, This is a cultural thing we don't have a clear comparison to, but it was a big deal. The great paternal blessing wasn't just words. It was a momentous occasion in the life of a tribe. In the days before wills and estate attorneys, it was the head of the house passing on not just his material goods, but his legacy and his stories and his God, all that he is onto his heir. So Isaac calls Esau to his side, and Esau enters the tent, and he leans down, and Isaac grabs onto his wrist, and he feels how hairy it is, and he smells the outdoors on his son's coat. And he tells his son, go out and kill, and bring back some meat, and make a savory meal you know that I love so much. So Esau gets up right away. He leaves the camp, but they weren't alone in the tent. Rebecca overheard the conversation, and she knows what her husband is up to. She doesn't want Esau to get the great paternal blessing. She wants Jacob to. 
So she finds Jacob and the two of them start to plot. And the Bible says Rebecca kills a goat and she gives the skins to Jacob to wrap around his wrists. She cooks the meat into a savory meal. And while she's doing that, Jacob goes into Esau's tent, into his dirty clothes hamper and reaches into the very bottom and finds the stinkiest, mustiest tunic he can find and puts it over his shoulders. In his costume complete, he takes the meal and goes to his father's tent. And Isaac, probably not expecting Esau to return so quickly, asks, Who are you? And in one of Jacob's first lines in the biblical narrative, Jacob says, I am Esau. Well, Isaac calls him over to his bed and grabs onto his wrist, and he feels how hairy it is. And he smells the outdoors on Esau's coat and doesn't worry about the sudden difference in his eldest son's voice. I imagine Isaac thinking to himself, it doesn't sound like Esau, but it smells and feels like Esau. Must be Esau. I am Esau. I wonder how often Jacob wished he were more like Esau. I wonder how many nights the four of them would spend around a campfire, Jacob and Rebecca stirring a stew, Isaac and Esau field dressing some fresh kill, talking about oil changes in football. How often did Jacob look across the fire and wonder how his father would treat him if maybe he were less Jacob and more Esau, more manly, more masculine. And the terrible beauty of this story is not whether it actually happened, but that it continues to. These are our stories. This was my story. I see myself in Jacob. I read this story in Genesis, and I'm taken back to the times I put on a costume to get the approval of my Isaac. For me, the costume was that of the perfect Christian. I would spend hours reading the Bible, books about the Bible. I led Bible studies on my high school campus. I went to Bible college. It's the top of my class. And those things are all good and fine. But I was doing it to pretend to be someone I wasn't in order to trick my community into approving of me. I thought that if I could pull off the perfect Christian, nobody would expect that I might be gay. So Jacob tricks his blind, dying father. They share a meal together, and afterwards, Isaac bestows the great paternal blessing on his son. And then Isaac falls asleep, and Jacob leaves the tent. And I wonder if that blessing felt good. I wonder if knowing that he had to trick his father into giving him a kind word left Jacob feeling hollow. I know it did me. Every blessing and and good word I received at Bible college or Sunday school or from my pastors never felt right because I knew it wasn't really for me. And maybe Jacob didn't have time to think about this because his mother was waiting outside the tent for him. And she tells Jacob he has to leave. They just didn't think this through. Esau's going to return any minute. And when he finds out what they did, he's going to be furious. So she gives him directions to her childhood home back in the old country, and he takes off. And what's interesting to me is the Bible doesn't say whether or not Jacob took off the costume. Yesterday was Reno's Pride celebration. June is the official month of gay pride, but all summer long, cities around the world celebrate queer stories. Pride is an annual celebration of queer identity and culture, and it's a way of remembering our history, collectively and individually. 
And in the weeks leading up to the sermon, I did a lot of thinking about identity. I thought about my identity struggles and my stories. I also thought about how groups and organizations and families and churches can go through identity crises. The United Methodist Church right now is going through this intense struggle and this potential split. And we're the only denomination left, the Protestant denomination, to not split regarding the question of human sexuality. But we split before. And back then it was whether black people and white people could worship the same God in the same building. And when we came back together, some people, some churches didn't join back up with us because we had female clergy. It seems like the big question over these splits is who is in and who's out, who gets to be in the pews and who should maybe stay outside, or who can give the church some money but can't teach Sunday school or take part in other areas in the life of the church. But then I started thinking about how the queer community, my queer community, has had these same struggles. Consider the beginnings of the queer rights movement. The first Pride Parade was a three-day riot over police brutality of queer people, mostly trans women of color. Trans women of color like Marsha P. Johnson and her friend Sylvia Rivera. They'd had enough of the way police in New York were treating them. Some of the only places where queer people could congregate were bars that were owned by the mob. And so police would use this as an excuse to raid these bars. And one night, it was June 28th, 1969, a paddy wagon backed up against the front door of the Stonewall Inn, and police poured into the bar, and the music stopped. And an officer would start shouting for fags to back up on one wall and dykes on the other wall and freaks in the back. And the freaks would then be led one at a time into a private room with a female police officer to ensure the outer clothing of the person matched the genitals under those clothes. And if they didn't, they were hauled away to jail, where many of them were beat up and raped. And maybe that June night in 1969 was just too hot, or that was just the last straw, but the queer community in New York couldn't stand it anymore. Queer tradition says that Marsha P. Johnson threw the first brick, and whether or not that is true, bricks were thrown. Windows were smashed, a riot began, and a movement was born. But even in the queer community, trans people have had to struggle for acceptance. Sylvia Rivera gave this incredible speech. It's her y'all better quiet down speech. And she gets up on this stage and this big crowd of men are shouting at her, telling her to shut up, get off the stage, calling her all sorts of names. And these were not straight men yelling at her. These were white, gay affluent men. And Sylvia Rivera stands her ground like a prophet in the wilderness and critiques these affluent white gay men who couldn't give a damn about trans people or gay rights. You know, a movie was recently made about the Stonewall riots and they completely whitewashed the story and the main character was some basic white twink. And I'm happy to say... (laughs) You like that? I do. I'm happy to say that movie flopped. But it's that erasure from history that trans people face on a daily basis. I wanted to say that bit in church. You could have said I thought better of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mentioned that church struggles with who's allowed in, but in queer spaces, even today, there's this struggle over who gets to take part in pride. Can bisexual people in heterosexual looking relationships be accepted at pride? 
There was this recently, just at the London Pride a few weeks ago, there's this movement amongst lesbian women saying that trans women aren't allowed at Pride or that they're not real women. Mm -hmm. And so this goes on right now, today. It's not something that stopped after that first Pride parade. Is the struggle over now that marriage equality theoretically exists? Or the movement keep fighting for employment and housing protections? Because in only 20 states are queer people protected from employment discrimination. And in only 17 states are queer people protected from housing discrimination. Will we keep fighting for hate crime and civil right protections? Because in all states except three, can you murder someone if you think they're hitting on you and they're gay? the gay panic defense. Will we keep working to expand marriage equality to all people so people with disabilities don't lose their benefits when they get married because that happens all the time? And these wins would mostly benefit non-white queer people. And so the struggle is real. And Pride is not a protest anymore. It's a party. And it's great to get together and tell our stories and celebrate queer culture. And I love the Pride Parade and Pride events. But The club-esque nature of this party makes it really hard to feel like you can join in if you're one of the massive amounts of queer people that struggle with dependency and addiction. And pride is commercialized, which, if you can't afford to pay rent, let alone those rainbow Kenneth Cole shoes, you may not feel like you get to join in. And pride is overwhelmingly targeted towards white cisgendered men, which makes it hard to find a home and feel like you're part of the community if you're not. And now, consider the church. The first people to tell others about the risen Christ were women. Sure, the twelve apostles get all the credit, but when they were hiding in the attic after Jesus had been crucified, who was it that went to the tomb and found it empty and returned to spread the good news? A sex worker named Mary. The majority of the first Christians were women and slaves and former slaves. I think it was Dominic Crossan who talks about how most of the church in the first century was was women and slaves. They were the people on the bottom, the Sylvia Rivera's and Marsha P. Johnson's of the ancient Mediterranean. In fact, the first critiques of our movement by the dominant Greco-Roman culture was that it was too feminine. And so two to three centuries later, the church couldn't stand not being taken seriously by Rome. And so women were ousted out of leadership roles and strict hierarchies were put into place, favoring men. And church is not that countercultural movement it started out as. We are now the dominant group, at least in the West. We're not the oppressed, ragtag, nobodies hiding in the catacombs and sewers to escape Roman persecution. The American evangelical community is more often than not the oppressive persecutors. And church is commercialized. Corporations know that if you want to tap into the big money market, just slap a cross or a Jesus fish on that bad boy and we will buy it. And the evangelical community in America is pretty white and straight and cisgendered, which can make it hard to feel like you're part of a faith community if you aren't those things. What do you do when you or your community are struggling with identity? with that all-important question, who are you? Let's go back to Jacob. A few decades pass, and Jacob is prospering. He has two wives, which, looking back, was problematic. He has 12 sons, at least one daughter, hundreds of sheep and goats, with dozens of shepherds and servants. 
His flock is grazing in the field one day when a scout approaches Jacob and tells him that his brother Esau is a few days away and he's not alone. He has found Jacob and he's coming with a huge force of fighting men. And Jacob's terrified. And Jacob does what Jacob did 20 years prior. He runs away. Jacob packs up his family and his sheep and his servants and they book it. And each day a scout tells Jacob that Esau is getting a little bit closer. Eventually, Jacob and company arrive at the Jabbok River, and Jacob knows it's going to take a lot of time to get all of his family and possessions and his animals and his servants across, time he doesn't have. And a final scout tells Jacob that Esau is a few hours away, and he's going to arrive by dawn. So Jacob helps his family cross, and his flock, and his servants, and shepherds, and all the baggage, And wanting to give his family as much time as possible to escape, Jacob stays on the eastern side of the Jabbok. And eventually the sun sets, and Jacob's alone. Jacob sets up a camp and wonders what his brother will do to him when he arrives. And then the Bible says, an ish appeared to Jacob. Ish is Hebrew for man, but the Bible isn't clear who this ish is. The rabbis throughout the centuries have debated, and many suggest that the Ish is God or an angel. Those are pretty popular interpretations. But some rabbis say that the man Jacob wrestles with is Jacob. And when I consider my story and the similarities between me and Jacob, I think this makes perfect sense. We all have internal struggles, not just queer people. But when you're struggling to come to terms with your identity, These internal struggles can feel like all-night wrestling matches. And so the Bible says Jacob wrestles with himself until dawn. Which Jacob will win? Will it be the Jacob that pretends to be whoever he thinks those around him want him to be? Will it be the Jacob that tricked his blind, dying father into giving him a blessing that probably felt pretty empty once it was received? This is what St. John of the Cross calls a dark night of the soul. It's based on the moment when Jesus was on the cross and he felt the overwhelming absence of God, when God felt abandoned by God. This isn't a simple struggling with doubt. This is drowning in it. This is the complete breakdown of your faith. This is when the mask you wear is heavier than it's ever been. But dawn breaks, the sun starts to rise, and the ish demands Jacob let him go. Jacob won't, and so the ish pops Jacob's hip out of socket, and still Jacob won't release him. So the ish says, what will it take for you to let me be on my way? To which Jacob replies, I won't let you go until you bless me. And the ish says, who are you? We've seen this before. This is exactly how the scene in Isaac's tent started. That time, Jacob wore a costume and received a blessing that he knew didn't belong to him. But this time, Jacob has wrestled the ish and won. The mask has been cast aside. And when the ish asks, who are you? Jacob, for the first time, is able to proudly and confidently say, I am Jacob. I am feminine and I like to cook and I don't like hunting and I don't care if you approve. I am who I am. Now give me my blessing. After a lifetime of struggling with his identity, the ish says, You are Jacob no longer. You will now be called Israel, which is sort of dark humor. It's (laughs) it's funny, but twisted. Yeah. 
Does God not appreciate the struggle that Jacob has gone through? I don't think that's what this means. I think God respects the struggle because the new name that Jacob receives, Israel, means he who wrestles with God. So Jesus told stories to illustrate what sort of God Jesus believed in. He tells about a lost sheep and the shepherd that leaves the rest of the herd to find that one lost sheep. What does that sheep do to earn this attention, this favor? Nothing. The only thing the sheep has to do to be found is to be lost. Jesus tells about a lost son that insults his father, takes his money and squanders it. And when the son returns, tail between his legs, what's the father's reaction? A prepaid ticket home and a barbecue in his honor. Does the son have to repent or pay back the money to return home? Not in Jesus's story. The only thing the son has to do to be found is to be lost. Jesus believed in a God that takes great pleasure in finding lost and broken things. Jesus believed in a God that does whatever is necessary to rebuild the bridges that we burn down. Jesus believed in a God that goes and finds that little sheep that society says doesn't belong in the pasture. And some of us have been told that who we are isn't worth God's time. And the more I read about Jesus, the more I think that doesn't sound like something he would say. I think there's no darkness God would not enter to find you. You're not what your father used to call you. You're not the number on your paycheck. You're not your job description. You are not your addiction, your mental illness, your marital status. You're not your diagnosis. It can be hard to accept that you are beloved when you're struggling to accept the very basic parts of your identity. When you have to trick your blind father to get a word of approval, when you wish you were more like your masculine, hunky older brother, it's not easy to swallow that God loves you just as you are, that God has adopted you into the heavenly family, that you are a co-inheritor with Christ that you are an image bearer of the divine no matter what your image looks like, that you are a co-creator with the God that created all things, that you're invited to partner with God to make your family and your neighborhood and your city, your country, your world a more just and beautiful and peaceful place to live. Sometimes it takes a dark night of the soul, a night full of wrestling with your ish, to be able to finally see who God insists you've always been. Before my mom left her husband, uh, she was in the basement clearing out some old boxes. She found her old diaries and she began to flip through them, reading these old entries, reliving the memories. She began to watch her past self start slipping away. She watched tears streaming down her cheeks as the life was sucked out of this girl the entry is growing more somber and resigned, and there's nothing she could do to help the girl in the diary. She sat in that basement, her knees pressed hard against the cold concrete, and remembered how much she gave up, remembered the dreams that once filled her sleep, remembered the aspirations that once whispered to her heart. And so she got up, and she bought a plane ticket to Kentucky, and she found refuge in the arms of a friend she hadn't seen since high school. And when I read about Jacob near the river Jabbok, his past slowly marching towards him with an army of fighting men, his own God wrestling with him and popping his joints out of place, 
I picture my mother sitting on a cold concrete floor, surrounded by old diaries. Without the pain of that darkness, there would have been no healing. Without the loss of the girl in the diary, there would have been no birth of the confident, proud, strong woman who in the middle of her life started a new life, a crown of gray hairs adorning her head, a testament of the ish she wrestled with to protect her children at the expense of her dreams. And wrinkles dance from her eyes because through it all, the woman never stopped smiling. The darkness of the basement was her salvation. The impulsive purchase of a one-way ticket to a state she'd never seen was her deliverance. It was the dark night of the soul that showed her who she really was. She wasn't the girl in the diary. She was the woman who, like millions of women before her and after her, took the cold, lifeless dirt of her life and breathed new life into it, shaping it into her own image. She was not the weak, submissive servant she had always believed that God ordained her to be. She was the woman who picked herself up from the cold basement floor. She is proud, she knows who she is, and it was because of the basement. And so you come out of the darkness into a new day, and you, like Jacob, like my mom, see yourself in a whole new light. And God doesn't give you a new name, she reveals who you've been the whole time. But I do think it's easier to get through that dark night when you're not wrestling alone. We need community, whether it be a church or a group of friends or a parade filled with colorful floats and colorful people shouting that you are beautiful just as you are. And that's what church is. And that's what church can be. Church can be a little bit more like a pride parade and pride maybe can be a bit more like church, a community. A family that doesn't always get it right, and sometimes we hurt and disappoint each other, and sometimes we can be as dysfunctional as Isaac and Rebecca and their two boys, but a community that provides companionship during those dark nights of the soul. And the importance of me reminding you that God's with you and that God loves you is that one day I might need you to remind me of that. So I finish the sermon up and I ask the congregation, and I ask you, who are you? Amen. Amen. Thanks, Devin. Well, thanks for listening to the Sunday Morning Sleep-In podcast. If you want to stick around after this little outro-y bit, we're going to have a, a little conversation about the sermon and about the process of writing the sermon and all of that stuff. Uh, if you have any questions for us or stories that relate to what we've been talking about and you want to share them with us, you can shoot us an email at sundaymorningsleepin at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on our website, sundaymorningsleepin.com. And this episode and all of our episodes are posted there. And there will be notes. I'll include the YouTube link to the Sylvia Rivera speech, the Y'all Better Quiet Down speech, and the John Dominic Crossan book that Devin mentioned, and some of the other stuff as well, including the scripture. Uh, The scripture for this podcast was Genesis 32, 22 to 32. And the theme music that you're hearing right now is Take Me Higher by Jazzer. But let's go back and talk a little bit more about the sermon. Devin, you had some really punchy lines in the <laughs> sermon. You had some really great like one-liners that just like strike you in a different way, even if you've heard the story a hundred times before. And one of my favorite things that you said was, it never says in the Bible that Jacob took the costume off. So for all of those folks who feel like they have been wearing some kind of costume, uh, which is all of us in some way or another, 
How do you find the strength, the courage, the the assurance to take the costume off? How do you do that? Yeah, I think it's community. I mean, for me specifically, coming out as a gay man, it was unfortunately leaving my church behind and finding a community of queer people and allies who loved me and supported me. Queer people don't have a lot of role models growing up. There mm. are no queer superheroes. Yeah. At least in the mainstream, there aren't a lot of, you know, protagonists in the big blockbuster movies that are queer. And so finding your own family, your own community, your own superheroes helps you realize that who you are under that mask is is just fine. Yeah. And eventually, and it's a slow process, it's not, you know, there's not one day where you just, I'm out. I'm proud of who I am. <laughs> it's, it's a long haul. I remember uh, years of struggling with internalized homophobia, internalized sexism, because that's really where it all stems. Mm. Just hatred of women. Yeah. Yeah, it's just doing the work finding people who want to do that work with you and can help you do that work better. And there are tons of resources to do this inside church or outside church. And I'll throw some of those resources on the website as well. What's funny to me about your story, it's not funny, it's not the right word. Ironic. It's like that dark sense of humor of like, your name's now Israel. (laughs) Is that Devin, your Jacob Esau impersonation was the perfect Christian and the pastor and the preacher and the Bible study leader. And then you moved away from that when you were sort of figuring out you know, how to accept yourself. And now you're back. (laughs) So uh, tell me about like, what is it like to realize that maybe the Esau impersonation wasn't as far off as you, as you thought it might've been? I mean, that parts of it, right? Were were rang true. Definitely. You know, I really did love church growing up. I believe that I loved God and I loved all the stories. I did have a really immature belief system, but I remember sort of starting to make this conscious decision around junior year of high school. Mm. Uh, When I started feeling, you know, same-sex attraction and struggling with the shame of that, I just doubled down on church and Bible study. Because for me, it was, if I just look this certain way, there's no way people will guess or believe it if somebody tells them that I could be gay. So yeah, I left the church eventually. I spent seven years away from the church. The first half of that, I was very hostile to church, uh, spirituality, the last half of that, I sort of chilled out. But yeah, it is funny. It's a funny twist that here I am again. But and I think it is that community. And your first sermon, this was going to be your first sermon. Yeah. <laughs> so you spent how many months writing the sermon? I don't know. How like, many times did it change? It might have been five months. Five months. And it changed. it changed one big time. But then like a million little edits and, oh, let's tell this story. And then eventually or the let's sermon tell was, it this way. Yeah, it or... was like 45 pages and it was really like three <laughs> sermons into one. And it was a big process, but I'm glad I had the time to really think about what I wanted to say. Yeah. I'm glad that I was more vulnerable than I was originally planning on being. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's because it's our stories that resonate with one another. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about, you know, this was supposed to be your first sermon and it was going to be this triumph and this reconciling church to stand up and claim queer identity as beloved of God. And then you got a phone call from the district superintendent who asked you to preach in two tiny little conservative mountain churches in the state of Jefferson, <laughs> like in California. And yeah. and it was, would you have preached the sermon or what did you do? I mean, how was that? I would not have preached the sermon. 
I think it's <laughs> I think it's just the relationship that I've built over the last year with this church that I feel like I could be vulnerable like that. I don't know. I think it's this weird tension. Like you want to give a message that may stretch and push people, mm-hmm. but also you want to bring a good comforting word. But also this isn't my church. I have no relationship with these people. But also, oh, maybe that means I can say whatever I want. You can say whatever yeah. you want, but are they going to hear it? Yeah, yeah. and all yeah. of that. The so, whole gospel is the comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable thing. Yeah. Can only happen in relationship. Yeah. In relationship with community. Yeah. Well, that, that was really funny because I remember you saying like, oh, I thought this was going to be my first sermon. And now and I said, this is such a better story, though, because it's really about the gospel fits with anybody. You know, yeah. the gospel, the gospel can speak because it's a good word. It is a good word, but it's not a good word for anybody unless it's a good word for everybody. Yeah. I mean, the whole sermon is fantastic. And nobody has ever praised a sermon in this church more highly than they have praised it in sermon <laughs> from this Sunday. And I have no resentment. <laughs> about that at all I really don't it was really fun to be there and and to see you kind of coming into another dimension of who you are uh, in this place it was a beautiful thing to see and to hear and it blessed me of course and I know it blessed a lot of people who were there and I hope that this podcast gets shared around I I think people who hear it are going to like it and want to share it so that folks who might be struggling with that taking off the costume thing will find a good word for themselves in the, in the Methodist church, we're big on lay preaching. So not just clergy preach. Everybody can preach and everybody uh, is invited into that space of sharing what they have learned with everybody else. And so what are the, way, what are the things that you think prepare you for that? To be able to speak your word, which is something that is not just something we do in church, right? But yeah. to speak your truth, as Oprah would say, uh, <laughs> whatever you're setting at work or at home, to be able to be truly who you are. What are the things that give you the strength to do that? Hmm. I mean, I think having a relationship with the people you're talking with. Hmm. I remember, I don't know why I was thinking about this, but when I was in Bible college, I was really into uh, this way of the master, like open air preaching. Um, oh, I remember you talking about yeah. this. Yeah. And we would go to Boise proper and open air preach. And there was and always... And open air preaching is like going to a public place and standing on a fountain and yeah, just talking. Yeah, telling people to repent and yeah. that if they don't, they're going to hell. Mm. Just this very hard line evangelical message and just shouting into people's faces. And we would leave with... And, and nobody would talk to us. Yeah. But we would leave feeling so like good about it and sort of self-righteous. Yeah. And so I don't recommend that. I think preparing like a message, you have to get to know the people you're talking to, which makes it a little harder if you go into a situation like the two churches they preached at. Yeah. I think going at it from a place of love that you really want to preach a good word that will offer some sort of healing and, and hope to somebody. And then just surrounding yourself with people who do it better than you, like you and Susan. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and Rob Bell and... And Rob Bell. And, and all those people. Yeah. Do you have any um, spiritual practices that kind of keep you listening while you're figuring out what you're going to say? Ooh. I mean, I guess so. I like listening to certain podcasts. Like every Monday, I'll listen to the Robcast. I'm not like praying... Or reading the Bible as often as I used to. You do kind of a different kind of meditation. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. The liturgists? The liturgists Yeah, the liturgists do some guided meditations. 
I do those every once in a while. You color. I color, yeah. De-stress. I don't know. You read a ton. I would say for a lay person. For a <laughs> lay person. For somebody who doesn't have to do it for their work. Yeah. You read a ton of books about scripture and kind of breaking down interpretations of scripture that have caused damage to people. So if you want, we'll throw some of your favorite books up on, like Amazon links up on the website as well. Yeah, that'd be cool. And just to give people a place to start. Like I I remember hating Paul growing up, all of the letters of Paul, because they just felt so rulesy and restrictive and judgmental. And then I read a John Dominic Crossan book about Paul. And it just broke open what he was doing and why he was doing it and why context and history matter in scripture. And all of a sudden his words became less restrictive and more liberating in a lot of ways. Yeah. I also think if if you're in a certain place, I wouldn't recommend reading the Bible to anyone or everyone. Sometimes maybe you need to read books about the Bible. I think the Bible can be a great edifying thing, but it can also be this sort of, I don't know, the double-edged sword yeah in seminary we had a professor who told us i think like during orientation that the bible is like pufferfish when you and there's a word for it but i can't think of the word right now the bible is like pufferfish in that if you have a skilled chef mm. who can prepare it well it is healthful yeah. and delicious and people can gather around and share this beautiful meal yeah. and it's wonderful and if you don't know what you're doing then you can very easily create the most poisonous dish on the planet. And one drop of the venom in this fish can kill 25 people. And so he says the Bible is like this fish. You know, if you prepare Mm. it well, then you can really find a lot of life in it. But if you don't, if you're sloppy with it, or if you're lazy about it, or if you come in with a particular agenda in order to force it to say something, uh, you can really do a lot of damage. And so this was to tell all the preachers in the room to be cautious about how you're saying what you're saying. And so it's always good to hear a good word that is prepared, that gives Mm -hmm. life and health. And so Devin, I want to thank you one more time. Is there anything else you want to say about the sermon process, the preaching process, the coming out process, pride, church, anything like that? I think there's no one right way to do any of it, but Mm -hmm. I think... Whatever way you do it, it's easier to do it in community. Whatever your community looks like. It doesn't have to be church, but I think what we do at church is worthwhile. Depends on the community. Depends on the community. One one thing I tell folks is, like you, right? If If you are in a church that is telling you that some part of who you are is unacceptable to God, that you are irredeemable in some way, then the proper response to that is to leave that place. Yeah. I think sometimes letting go is a lot harder when you don't know what else there is out there. But there are lots of really loving and supportive communities if you're looking for that or if you need to take a break from that. That's okay, too. God's not going to lose track of you. Nah. So, nah. (laughs) Nah. So, it's traditional at the end of a worship service for the preacher to deliver a blessing to the congregation. So, Devin, have you got any wise words for us as we go from this place? You've asked me this twice, and I should have been more prepared. I just say the same homework that we give at our church, which is to go out and love everyone you meet, even the people you don't think deserve it, because God thinks they do. Amen. Amen.